episode of Mormon Discussion. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can also find this podcast on iTunes or at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. We pick up with where we left off with the second part of my interview with Chris Reeve. So all this talk about separating the divine from human nature or the, the limits of man or, or how we act without divine intervention, the, the question kind of all points to this one, all this commentary points to this one question, which is how do you personally separate when God's speaking through a prophet and when when Elder McConkie, President Monson, Joseph Fielding, when those guys are speaking as themselves, what's how do you tell the difference? I think everyone probably has their own answer, and everyone struggles with that in their own way. I Again, you know, maybe this is going to drive some people nuts, but I go back to Elder Oak's teaching about a personal line and a priesthood line. So I feel like if I'm directed to do something, that I should be able to feel in my heart that that's okay to do. I don't want to say I'll demand that of the Lord, but I feel like I should be entitled to some sort of confirming revelation. If I don't receive that, I don't necessarily view that as binding upon me. Because if one of us were to, in honesty, go through General Conference and write down everything that we're instructed to do, and everything that we're doing that's not what we're instructed to do, you know, we would have hundreds of changes in our lives to make. Well, that's not possible for anyone, and it's certainly not constructive, because we'd end up failing in all of them. And so we, it would feel like a complete failure, an utter total failure. But what we can do is pick maybe two or three or four, or maybe one to work on. But how do you pick which one? To me, you, maybe you could write a pros and cons list, but for me it goes back to spiritual discernment. Only the Lord knows which is most important for me. And so, for me, it's the confirming witness that I feel when I feel something inside that indicates that that's something I need to pay attention to or I need to work on. Then that means more than hearing words. And I suppose another related principle is when something gets said over and over and over and over again, kind of a repetition. That's something I should also pay attention to. At least put it on the back burner, if not immediate. So to me, those two principles are useful. The most important one is... Again, my own personal spiritual connection with Heavenly Father, my own ability to discern what counsel is most pertinent to me, most important to me, and how can I apply that counsel to myself in a constructive way. Right, the communication of the Holy Ghost. Right. And and that's, I guess that's the point. I wanted, The reason I wanted to ask that was because we talked earlier about how all members are taught that a prophet's only a prophet when acting as such, and yet most members don't quite grasp that. And I think the reality of it is is that most members don't haven't understood yet. Maybe they've learned it, but they haven't understood yet that the Holy Ghost is the buffer. That there isn't this direct, you know, man speaks, he's a, he's had hands laid on his head, he serves in some type of apostolic calling, so everything he says comes from God. There's this kind of leaving out of the Holy Ghost, and every time that these men speak, saying to yourself, you know, am I feeling a spiritual confirmation that those things are true? And and then maybe if I don't, do I go back to my bedroom that night and kneel down and ask Heavenly Father that, that he might share with me by the Holy Ghost if those things are true? It's almost like we miss a step. And in missing a step, we make the gospel into something it really isn't. And we allow men of God to talk for the church at all times when they themselves would not claim that. Right. Right. <clears throat> right. It's an important principle that doctrine is only proclaimed by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve in unanimity. The prophet also can interpret and declare doctrine 
but and as Elder Christopherson taught, an apostle's teachings, however well-founded or well-considered, may just be that apostle's opinion. And I certainly agree that it's so important to be able to have spiritual experiences, and that's one of the reasons why having spiritual experiences is so critical, because there's so much information that is out there, but the Lord wants us not to soak it all up like a sponge, but to receive what we need, and in the order that we need it, in the way that we need it. He wants us to interpret the message the way that he would have us interpret it. And we can't do that with our ears. We do that through the Holy Ghost. Did did you talk about these books that you read? Did you ever read D. Michael Quinn's Mormon Hierarchy? I didn't. I, okay. I, I guess it's obvious that I'm pretty orthodox in my views. I'm not very liberal, as some might say. And I haven't strayed too far to, you know, Grant Palmer's Insider's Account on Mormon Origins or D. Michael Quinn's. I've stayed a little bit on the other side of the line, so to speak. And, and so I... I that's just how I am, and I realize that might rub some people the wrong way, uh, and I uh, hopefully that isn't the case, but I realize that some of the things I've chosen not to participate in, and some of that is by choice, because I'm not really sure how constructive or helpful that would be for me personally. Sure. The, the reason I bring that up, because we're talking about prophets not acting as prophets all the time, D. Michael Quinn's book, Mormon Hierarchy, shares a lot of detail about... Um, the prophets and the apostles kind of behind the scenes. Um, Ezra Tapp Benson's political motives or thoughts or beliefs and perhaps how other members of the Quorum of the Twelve felt about that. And it was just interesting for me for the very first time to see that there was absolutely a difference of opinion among those top 15 men. And I just watched a video today from Elder Eyring where he was giving a lecture, I believe it might have been at Harvard, and he was asked about how how in the church and in the world there's a difference of how we counsel together. And his answer was really profound. He talked about his experience being called into the Quorum of the Twelve and how having come from a very intellectual upbringing, being very much in the intellectual world and seeing how things operated there, he explained to this group how in the Quorum of the Twelve he expected them to be united, absolutely united. And he said nowhere had he ever seen so much disagreement and going back and forth with each other, and he sat back kind of amazed that here are these, you know, pro- prophets and apostles who are adamant about sharing their point of view no matter who differs with who. And then he starts talking about how he starts to pick up on how respectful they all are of each other's opinions. And he said, how are we ever going to get a revelation in this? And he said, as time went on, <clears throat> all of a sudden members of the 15 started to come together and they started to agree on things until they got really close to almost a unanimous decision. And he thought it was unanimous. And the president of the church at the time, I don't remember who it was, I don't know if it was Howard W. Hunter or, or who it was, but he made the comment that the prophet in the room said, they're, you know, it's almost like they're ready to make a decision. And he allowed it to just be tabled, to go to the back burner and be talked about another time, because he said, I feel someone in the room is not quite united with us yet. And or someone is not quite comfortable with the decision that we're leaning towards. And all of a sudden the meeting ends, and Elder Eyring kind of sits around and watches. Here he is, he's a new member of the Twelve. And as everybody's exiting the room, he notices this one apostle, walks up to the prophet and says, Thank you. Thank you for understanding that I wasn't quite there yet. So even in the midst of all this disagreement, there's still revelation occurring. I don't know that most of us as members of the church get that. I think we just think that these men get together, something's on the floor, you know, as far as being talked about. And all 15 men just say, yep, let's go do this. And they don't recognize there's there's a lot more that goes into the meetings that these men have than to just say it's just this easy process of revelation and 
lightning strikes every time they, they have a conversation and angels show up in the room. I think we need to appreciate really what's going on. That's a good point. There's something to be said for communication, for listening, for understanding that each individual, we have our own perceptions, our own prejudices, our own perspectives, our own experiences. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good to counsel. It's good to discuss. It's good to have opinions. There's a great power in unity. One of the books that I've read recently that I really like is on President Kimball's presidency. And it does talk about issues with respect to women, and it talks about some other aspects of President Kimball, Kimball's presidency. One of the most interesting, one of the things that pertains most to our discussion now is the revelation on the priesthood in 1978. And in reading that account, what struck me was not necessarily that President Kimball received the revelation, but the miracle that all the First Presidency and all the Quorum of the Twelve were completely united in the receipt of that revelation and in that perspective and ready to move. And President Kimball was extremely accommodating throughout the process, wanting to hear from each brother and to, wanted each of, each of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency to speak freely, to delve into it, to write memos, to write reports about what this would mean, how, what the implications would be. He spent a lot of time in the temple praying just the prophet, President Kimball, in the temple by himself, hours praying. And President McKay had also spent many, many hours praying over this issue of when can people of African descent receive the priesthood. And so going back to your point about that the prophet and the Lord don't have a veil between them, well, the opposite is true. The prophet struggles and prays to get revelation, just as we do. Now, of course, his communication with the Lord perhaps is much more refined and much more urgent and over a host of other matters that we don't have to be concerned with. But as Elder Scott and many others have talked about, the processes are the same. We have to spend a lot of time thinking and deciding and then praying. And that's individually. And, of course, if you have a group, then we have our own individual biases and experiences and concerns. You know, it's not too much of a secret that President Uchtdorf is a little bit more of a Democrat than most of the other brethren who are more Republican, as one example, okay? So, and it's not too much of a surprise to realize that President Packer has, of course, been outspoken against evolution, but that doesn't mean that Elder Scott feels the same way or Elder Bednar necessarily, right? So there's, you probably read that account in the 1930s when the Quorum of the Twelve, I think the First Presidency, were in the Salt Lake Temple and debating the age of the earth, I think, and Brother Witso, maybe Brother Talmadge, and I think Joseph Fielding Smith were on kind of the other edge of this, and, and so some of the, the more scientific-minded brethren including possibly B.H. Roberts, I can't remember the exact particulars of this, we're kind of going back and forth with someone like Joseph Fielding Smith, who was very much, you know, evolution is a theory of man, God created the earth, the earth is 6,000 years old, more of a literalist. And after much discussion and discourse, I think George Albert Smith said something like, or Hebert J. Grant, I can't recall the specifics, this discussion is not really getting us anywhere spiritually, and we're not moving the work of the Lord forward, so we're not going to talk about this anymore. And in a sense, it's kind of disappointing that that was never resolved. But in a sense, it's kind of encouraging that we can have people that disagree with things or that don't know, but we can still go forward personally and the church can still go forward. That's okay if right. there's disagreement, if there's not unanimity with some things. We can still move forward. Right. You uh, you mentioned that there's some books that you would just personally tend to stay away from, but, but I know in preparing for this interview you had mentioned uh, coming into contact with mainstream biblical scholarship. And so I'm just, I'm curious what got you into that and how that impacted you. I watched some PBS documentary 
this is maybe 18 months ago or two years ago, about the Old Testament. And I've always had a hard time with mainstream biblical scholarship, and I just kind of tend to discount it. One of the reasons was, one of the main premises of biblical mainstream biblical scholarship is, prophecy is discounted and miracles are discounted. And so for me, if you're discounting those things, I don't see how anything else is going to be necessarily relevant to me with regard to spirituality. So I'd always kind of distance myself from mainstream biblical scholarship because they have viewed the Bible typically as a collection of writings of a group of people that changed their view about God over time to match other you know, Middle Eastern peoples. And this PBS documentary, for some reason, got me more interested in looking into what the mainstream biblical scholars feel about the age and the origin of the Bible and uh, helped me understand more about when mainstream biblical scholars view the Gospels as written and the Epistles of Paul as written and the oldest parts of the book could be the books of the Psalms and viewing that the books of Moses, for instance, were written around uh, maybe the, the time of the, the scattering of the children of Israel, so maybe around 550 B.C. or 500 B.C. or something. So that was just kind of interesting. Again, it doesn't do much for me spiritually. I have to stay connected spiritually. It's fine to dabble in other things, but I have to remember that for me the church is this about divinity, not necessarily about secular learning, so-called, or learning without this spiritual power. I need to make sure that spiritual power is part of my life. Right. One can become like Christ without without knowing as much information as what's contained in an encyclopedia or or at the search of a, a Google search engine. Um, becoming like Christ should be predominantly at the forefront of what we're doing. So kind of maybe heading on the, the downhill swing of this and, and starting to work towards a conclusion, you you listed in this interview a lot of things that you have found to be helpful. Do you want to maybe briefly go over some of the things, maybe even reiterating some you've already talked about, things that you found to be helpful at times when, when you've encountered difficult information or times that you've struggled with your faith? Sure. One thing I haven't really talked a lot about is teaching in Second Nephi that men are free to act and not be acted upon except by punishments at the, at the last day. Now, we probably most often think about that meaning that we can be as wicked as we want and the Lord's not going to force us to repent. And that's true. But I also view it as applying to looking at the world around us, looking at reason, empirical evidence, and all those things. The Lord is not going to push us to believe by showering us with empirical evidence, unquestionable, incontrovertible empirical evidence that the church is true, that the gospel is true. That would be taking away our agency. So to me, there's always going to be a balance. There's always going to be some things that are faith-supporting, empirically speaking, you know, looking at historical evidence. There's also going to be things that aren't faith-supporting, that are going to be trying to faith, difficult to believe in. And so this balance for me is helpful to understand that not only am I not going to know everything, but it's important that I not know everything. And not only will some things not be faith-promoting, but that's part of the program. That's part of how things are set up. That's part of how Heavenly Father wants it to be. If everything was faith-promoting, it would be similar to how every time we keep the commandments, we're immediately blessed, and there's no suffering and trials among the Latter-day Saints. Well, right. you know, the church is going to grow exponentially if that's what the case. Right. Who would break a commandment at that point? Right. Who would break a commandment? Home teaching would be through the roof. Now, the non-believer would look at you explaining it that way and, and would, you know, I've been told you're faking it. You're, you want the church to be true. You want Christ to be true so badly that you're willing to throw out, you know, the, the amount of things that 
contradict that belief or go against it or poke holes in it. And you essentially have said, I'll cling to anything. And, and I'm not saying you said that, but I'm saying as believers, sometimes they take it that way. We say that. How do you, how do you, I look at Hebrews chapter 11, right? Paul's talking about faith. He says, faith is the hope for things, the evidence of which is not seen. And so as a believer, I look at it, I go, God's told me right up front, sorry, buddy, if you're looking for the evidence in an overwhelming fashion, it's not going to be there. The non, the non-believer takes that scripture and says, you know, that's just some guy, you know, using circular reasoning to, to keep the, the story tale going. How do you deal with that? How do you maintain belief? For me, it's always been essential that I nourish that seed, that that tree is still growing. If it becomes sick or weak or dry, then it's going to be more difficult to respond to those things. It's going to be more difficult to find the answer. For me, the answer always is faith. But again, to the unbeliever, that's not acceptable. It's not enough. A great example of that is Stephen Hawking, who published this book and fairly well-publicized teaching that... God isn't necessary anymore to explain the universe. Thinking about God kind of mechanistically, as before we had this scientific understanding, we had to have God to explain how the universe came to being. But now we understand the natural laws, and we understand that they don't change, and so we don't have to explain God to explain the universe. We don't need God anymore to explain the universe. And that's a very strong argument, I think, to people that see the scientific evidence and see the natural laws and struggle with faith and try to understand where faith fits in. And that kind of argument is, well, we are who we are. We are creatures that have evolved over time, and that's who we are. And the universe is a series of natural laws, and that's what it is. And again, as Latter-day Saints, or as people of faith, of any faith, it's so important to have that spiritual underpinning, so to speak, that there's something more, that there's something transcendent, that there's a soul, that there's a spirit, that there is some sort of salvation that we're seeking, and there's some sort of spiritual reality. And when we start to discern that and realize that, and realize that it's good and it blesses us, then our lives change forever, our world changes forever. When we start to realize that faith can bless us, and that faith is real in a very real sense, that there are spiritual things that are just as real as material things, that there are spiritual laws that are just as real as natural laws. And the difficult thing, then, is to understand that there are going to be some people that because of lack of belief or cynicism or skepticism are going to have difficulty generating a spark of faith, any faith. And so they're going to have a very difficult time even understanding what a spiritual experience really is other than something related to your brain chemistry or something related to the evolutionary history of your mind. They just have a very difficult time seeing a spiritual experience as something moving and transcendent and meaningful in an eternal sense. Right. And that kind of, I recently had um, a conversation where I shared one of the spiritual experiences that I had had that, that went beyond what I consider to be explainable. And even in sharing those things with people who, who choose or who are drawn towards unbelief, and, you know, they're going to look at you and me and they're going to say, you guys are the crazy ones. And that's fine. I mean, I, I, I've been accused of worse. But even when I share that experience, their whole point to come back on is just because you can't explain it doesn't make it evidence. And yet there's this dichotomy, right? There's these folks on one side who say, you know, you're being pulled towards faith for no good reason. And then there's us on this side looking at them and going, 
you won't believe worth anything. You know, there's, there's nothing I can show you right. that will cause you to believe it. And I look at the Book of Mormon, and, and obviously the, the non-believer is going to say you're pulling out fairy tales, but here's Laman and Lemuel, who an angel shows up to. And we have ex- examples of that even in the, in the New Testament. Paul's giving the gospel to the Gentiles takes him several re- revelations before he actually gives in and caves to that. There's, there's this, there's almost this, um, characteristic within us to want to explain things naturally and not to accept things at face value. What I mean by that is this. Throw, throw Heavenly Father or belief in a divine being out the window for a minute. And just take Alma chapter 32 at face value. Forget the divine. Just the fact of exercising good principles and seeing what happens in your life. And it seems like if we pray, if we read scriptures, if we serve our, our fellow human beings, if we try to repent or change of things that we perceive as negatives in our life, that there are all these fruits of the gospel that come into our life, God or no God, that it holds true for atheists or believer, that when they exercise gospel principles, good things happen. And yet, there's an inability to attribute that to the source at which we learned all of those things, which was through biblical and scriptural text. I mean, who else is telling you to be meek? Who else is saying, be humble? Who else is saying, love thy neighbor as thyself, or do unto others as you would have them do unto... You know, it's the religious teaching of the world that teaches us to go forward and do these good things. From a non-religious perspective, and and by no means are atheists um, looking to sin or to be uh, make bad choices, I don't mean that by any by any means, but taking Scripture out of the out of the uh, out of the equation completely... Why not steal? I can get more for my family. I can get more for the things I want. Why not be dishonest? I can move up faster in the world that way. Why not break the word of wisdom? I can have more friends and a bigger circle of influence. And yet, when we really do all those things, we actually withdraw ourselves from blessings. And it's a, those things are apparent to both the believer and the unbeliever. And yet the believer so easily attributes it to God. The unbeliever really struggles to make that connection. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think this is kind of similar. When you have someone that's agnostic or atheistic that looks at someone in the church who's an honest-to-goodness believer, and they're apparently honest, and they apparently live the law of chastity, and they apparently abstain from alcohol, and they apparently are happy, there must be some acknowledgement that somehow there's something in their life that's working, that's working for them. Now, backpedaling a little bit to a faith crisis for me a little bit, is when I've seen people that have left the church and something spiritually works for them that apparently is better than the church. When I was a, There are two examples that come to mind. One is when I was a missionary, a full-time missionary taught a really nice man and really close to baptism. And there was some problem at the end. The person that did the interview never really told me what it was. I kind of suspect he was living with his girlfriend or spending some time, you know, sleeping with his girlfriend and never just told us. But we kept trying to teach the law of chastity, and he said he understood it. So <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Right. In any case, he ended up not getting baptized. And it was really difficult for me, and I think my companion at the time, too. And several months later, when I was in a different area, I saw him again. And he seemed happy. He seemed content. He seemed like things were going well. And he said, yeah, I'm going to a church. And it was some other Protestant denomination that he was going to. And so it kind of was something that was difficult for me. How was he so much happier at a church that wasn't our church? And similarly, at Sandusky, there was a less active, I remember, visiting. 
really nice woman, and she drove an hour to go to church, and she loved her church. And it was everything, she said, it was everything she ever wanted in church. And, and she'd been a member of our board for maybe seven or eight years at the time I met her, and she had been active for a year or two. So it wasn't like she was baptized and confirmed and never came to church. She'd been to church before, but for some reason, something that other church offered was a more powerful or more vibrant or more meaningful spiritual experience. And that's something that, for me personally, I don't really understand. It bothered me at the time. That still bothers me a little bit. But I think it's okay to have things that we don't know. That's okay. It's okay to have mysteries. It's okay to even realize we don't we have mysteries. That Alma chapter 40, Alma the Younger is teaching his son about the spirit world. But he says several times in that chapter, I don't know whether it's this or this. He'll talk about some other subject, about the order of the resurrection or when the resurrection is. And he'll say on a number of occasions, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And so to me, that's really evident that here's a prophet in the Book of Mormon near the end of his life. And yes, he prayed to know something, but he also realizes the limits of his knowledge. And that is a very powerful lesson for me that it's okay to not know something. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to have an answer for everything. It's okay if I don't really understand how evolution squares with our creation's account in scriptures. That's okay if I don't understand that. It's okay. I don't have to put that jigsaw puzzle together. I can have that unresolved right now. As long as I have something that I do know spiritually, that's my core. And so maybe that drives some people crazy. Maybe they have to put all the pieces together now. For me, I'm okay with waiting and realizing that at some point, that will make sense. It doesn't make sense now. Do you have a shelf? I have a top shelf. There's a lot, there's a lot on there. You can tell by now there's a lot on that top shelf. Right. And lots of people you talk to who have lost faith talk about how the shelf collapses. They just, they, they put one thing after another on the shelf. Could you, if you don't mind, I'm, you know, we weren't prepared maybe that to, for me to ask you this question, but is there a such thing as too much going on the shelf? Can your shelf only handle so much material? Right. And, and how do you deal with that? Right. That's very true. Just like our ears can only handle so much sound, our eyes can only handle so much light before they get damaged, our heart or our faith can only handle so much material of any sort before we just can't accommodate that level. And I'm not talking just about negative things, but positive things too. You remember the accounts of Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith and just utter exhaustion after some spiritual experiences, or Moses, utter exhaustion. They just couldn't take any more spiritual experiences, so the spirit had to withdraw for a while right. for them to regain their strength. And so... As spiritual beings, there's only so much we can take, whether it's positive or negative, at a certain time. We can't take too much on. That's just not how human beings are built, whether that's too much at work or too much stress. I mean, we have limits. And so, for me, putting too much on the top shelf in a faith crisis is along the same sorts of lines as balance in our lives. And one of the key things that we need in balance is we need to have some faith. We need to find that faith. If we haven't found it, we need to find it. That's got to be priority number one. If we can't find that faith, then we don't have anything. If we can find something spiritually, then we have something. We have something to tie to, to anchor to. We have a data point. We have something that, okay, this knowledge I have, and I know that it's real, and I know that this is good. It's just Alma 32. I know the seed is good. That's good enough. It's good enough to say, I know that the church is good. I know the Book of Mormon helps me feel peace. That's a good enough starting point. But if at that point, we start loading up that top shelf with everything, and we're not nourishing that seed, we're not taking care of it, I mean, that's going to happen. Just as, you know, you walk into a rock concert and it's 150 decibels, and you don't have, or you walk into a, a monster truck rally, no earplugs, you're going to have hearing damage. It's going to happen. Or you look at the sun for long enough. 
you're going to have eyesight damage. It, it's just going to happen. It's not that the sun is wicked or, you know, you're a terrible person for staring at the sun. Your eyes just can't do that. And so I think spiritually we have to acknowledge our limitations. That's okay to have limitations. It's okay to realize I just can't confront all these things at once. Yep, and I think this is where the Internet changed the game. Yes. If we look back, in maybe addressing those individuals who feel like the church should talk about these issues, the church should make sure every member knows them. And I shared this um, in a conversation with somebody the other day, that if we go back 15 years before, in the past, the Internet was just coming on, and up until that point, if someone wanted to learn the deeper, tougher issues of, of Mormonism or Christianity, for that matter, one had to borrow a book from their library. Every library only had a couple of books. Libraries weren't connected as they were. There aren't any Kindles or, or iPods or uh, the Internet certainly doesn't have, have the information at that point that it does today. So for someone to find out something about polygamy or seer stones or the historical Jesus, one had to go through a book at a time. Those books might have been months apart from each other. And one could handle a difficult issue in phases working through one issue at a time. And I think the church liked it that way. Um, I related this to if we come to our parents as 10-year-olds and we want to know how babies are born, mom and dad don't throw the whole load on us at once and say, well, kid, let me draw some pictures and explain how all this works. And if we go on a first date with somebody, we don't say, well, you know, uh, Mrs. Smith, let me tell you all my flaws. Let me tell you all the negative things about me. We don't do that. We we give people little bits of information at a time because that's the best way for someone to handle it. You might say, well, I think it's important to be completely honest. So on my first date, I'm going to tell the person all my flaws. Well, that's fine, but you'll never be married and you'll never have a second date. You can't do that. So all of a sudden the Internet comes on. And rather than dealing with bad information one piece at a time, now all of a sudden at the click of a mouse button, in a search on Google or Bing, one can delve into hundreds of issues in a matter of a few hours or days. That seems to speak to overloading your shelf, that your shelf can handle a little bit at a time. Because at the same time you're putting things in your shelf, there's also some answers that are coming and taking things off the shelf. But but the Internet has essentially become a tool to to really challenge people's testimonies by throwing everything on them all at once. Yeah, I agree. I think the Internet can unfortunately have that function. It can throw too much information and certainly information that could be destructive or difficult to deal with. And we can't run faster than we have strength. And that's true mentally. We can't process information faster than we can receive it. If we receive information and it's something difficult to either understand or comprehend or accept, we have to take some time to really think about it. We have to take some time to process it. Sometimes days or weeks to really figure it out and it doesn't do us any good to just overload ourselves. It, it also seems to take church leaders out of context. So, for instance, critics of the church really struggle with some of the things that Bruce R. McConkie wrote or taught. And rather than having the Internet be non-existent in listening or reading about the thousands of things that Elder McConkie said, in dealing with the five or six or ten or twelve that are most troublesome in the context of being one every 15 or 20 statements that he would make, or 30 statements or 50 statements, one goes on the Internet, clicks on a page, and sees the absolute worst or negative about somebody, not having any of the positive to balance that. And it seems like 
we set people up to almost, the internet almost causes them to live in a false reality where only the negative it seems to be happening everywhere, and we seem to kind of set the positive off to the side. It doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that's a good point, that the internet can change or twist our view of reality. When we start seeing information, again, we're very limited how we see things, how we understand things. So that's how we see things as they are. We assume that's how they are, but that may not be how they are. It's one thing to receive information. It's another thing to process information. That's another thing to understand that information totally. As an example, reading the Book of Mormon as a teenager, of course I was interested in the battle scenes, and I was interested when there was a seminary video or something that came out about Captain Moroni. And uh, I was kind of interested to see this battle scene, and it was very low budget. And I was really disappointed, not just with the low budgetness of it, but I remember reading about breastplates and swords in the Book of Mormon, and in my mind I'm thinking those Arnold Freiberg paintings with Arnold Schwarzenegger in this huge bronze breastplate and this Conan the Barbarian sword, you know. That's what I see when I hear sword and breastplate. And so when I was watching this seminary video, the video was not designed for entertainment. The church produces videos to teach and to help people understand and accept the gospel. But I was so distracted with this breastplate sword issue that the video did nothing for me spiritually. I was too focused on something that didn't matter, that wasn't central. And it's so easy for us, because our understanding is so flawed and in, in, incorrect, that we get hung up on something. And it's very natural. It happens to many of us a lot of the time. We get hung up on something. It's happened to me in the temple. Get hung, hung, hung up on something trivial. And so the real power, the real idea of what's going on is just completely lost. It's just useless to me. Of course, over time, I realized real Mesoamerican archaeology indicates that the kind of armor on the seminary video is actually about what the Central Americans fought with. And if you really look at the Book of Mormon, it doesn't say anything about bronze breastplates. It could be a thick animal skin. That's possible. You know, Again, some apologetics people may not be comfortable with, but over time there's an answer to that. But at the time I was confronted with it, because it contrasted so starkly with my understanding, again, very limited example, but I think the principle applies, because it contrasted so starkly, I was unable to be in a frame of mind to get anything spiritually out of what should have been a spiritual event, what should have been a spiritual experience. And so I think our lack of understanding about things can really trip us up, can really confuse us about what really is and what really isn't and what our perception is. The Hill Cumorah is another great example. If you really think about Hill Cumorah as the Book of Mormon Hill Cumorah, this hill where you know, hundreds of thousands of Nephites died, and you go to upstate New York, and it's just kind of an obscure hill, you think, really? 230,000 Nephites died here. You know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not a prominent hill. It's not like Mount Washington in New Hampshire, or Mount Rainier in Washington State, or Mount Everest in... It's just not a very prominent geographical feature. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So it just seems odd. And then you look at the geography and you try to figure out, well, where are the Book of Mormon lands? Where are the rivers side and where's everything else? It doesn't make a lot of sense rationally. But if you go back to the Times and Seasons account that Joseph Smith wrote about getting the plates from the hill, he doesn't call it Camorra. He says, I got the plates from the hill. He doesn't call it Camorra. So other Latter-day Saints later on called that hill Camorra, but Joseph Smith didn't call that hill Camorra. Other people did that. So again, our lack of understanding sometimes puts us in a bind. And that's natural and normal, because we have imperfect knowledge and imperfect understanding. I think it's important for us to be patient with that, to realize there's some things, like Mark Twain that said, there's some things 
that we know are true that just ain't so, you know, and that's really true. There's some things that we really think are what, how it is, or reality, and it's not really the case. That's not to say that we believe in moral relativism, far from it, but when it comes to historical specifics and our view of how things were and how people were, there's, it's more complicated and more subtle, and our perception is not always reality. And then, of course, another challenge is how different people have different perspectives at the time. So Rough Stone Rolling, an example, if I remember right, talks about when Joseph Smith was arrested and went to Richmond and then later Liberty Jail. Well, his account was that he was betrayed, but the I can't remember his name, the one who supposedly betrayed him, his account was that Joseph Smith said, go to our enemies and beg like a dog for peace. Peace on any terms. And so he thought that he was actually following the prophet's counsel by doing this, evidently. And so it's interesting to see this dichotomy. Uh, I thought, as another example, you could read First Nephi chapter, say, 3 and 4, and try to think about it from Laban's perspective. Instead of Nephi and Laban and Lemuel, let's think about it from Laban's perspective, right? These guys come to me, and this guy says, I need this really obscure, ancient, wealthy record. I need it now. And I chase him off because, no, it belongs to me, right? This is the first time when Laban comes to him and asks for the plates. Okay. And then these guys come back to me later, and they have this, you know, secondhand, rusty old piece of junk. And they're trying to buy the plates from him. Well, sorry, guys, but it's not worth the value of these metal plates. I can't sell them to you. And, of course, our Book of Mormon narrative is very different. But if we think about things critically or analytically, sometimes we can see that there's two sides to things. And that doesn't mean that one is necessarily right or one is necessarily wrong. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. It just acknowledges that history is sometimes more complicated than we really understand it to be. Yeah, absolutely. So realizing that we each need to have a shelf, because if we're going to study things, we're going to run into some things that we don't have answers on at the moment. And realizing that the Internet has caused uh, this new wave of how fast this troublesome stuff can come on. Is, is faith crisis something that everybody's going to have to deal with on some level, or, or is there, I mean, can we avoid it? I think it probably depends on each person. Certainly everyone will come to some point where their faith is in question, and it becomes a little bit more difficult to believe because of some new information or because of some example of someone that's hurt them in the past that they trusted. And everyone has to experience that and will continue to experience that kind of trial of faith. And so faith crisis, I think, will certainly be an ongoing part of these trials of faith that we have. We have to confront our challenges, and we have to figure out how those challenges fit in the gospel, how we fit in the gospel, and still nourish our spirituality. And if we come across a bunch of difficult issues on top of that, it can make it even more challenging to process all that information. So I think a faith crisis is very normal. I think it's very difficult for people to get through that. But for me personally, and again, I'm maybe not very helpful because I'm so orthodox and so maybe a conservative Mormon, not very, not terribly liberal in many ways. But for me personally, having a spiritual backstop, so to speak, something that I can always go back to, has been extremely helpful. And I feel that if everyone has a testimony that they know Jesus is the Christ, and they know something about the divinity of Joseph Smith, that's good. And I think it should be heartening to almost any Latter-day Saint. But time and again, yes, there are particulars that are discussed, but prophets continually talk about the divinity of Jesus Christ and the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith. Those are kind of the two pillars of our testimony. And if we can have those be our testimony, it's okay if there's other things we don't know 
or don't understand or have difficulty with, that's okay. And then for those of us that don't necessarily have a faith crisis, certainly we need to be sympathetic. Okay, we may not be able to be empathetic, but we certainly need to be sympathetic. That doesn't mean we have to be disloyal to the church, and that doesn't mean we have to uh, criticize the church, but it certainly doesn't mean that we have to criticize people that struggle. We need to be supportive, we need to be loving, we need to be understanding, we need to be helpful. President Kimball, great example of that. On many occasions he would listen to people go on and on and talk about how the church should be governed. And President Kimball, of course, was in the Quorum of the Twelve, president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and then the prophet for a number of years. And on many of these occasions he would listen patiently and not judging the counsel that he'd give about what the First Presidency needed to do or whatever. And I think that's a great lesson for us, that maybe we need to be a lot slower to judge other people. And we need to just focus on loving and listening and supporting people emotionally and spiritually as much as we can, however we can. And I think that applies to a faith crisis or applies to any sort of trial, whether it's a health-related trial, whether it's someone that's struggling with their gender identity, whether it's struggling with some other trial or challenge. We need to be listening, we need to be supportive, we need to be caring. And that's, to me, so critical. It's so easy to be a Pharisee and just kind of drive people away. Either give them the answer and be done with it, or tell them why they're wrong, or jump to the defense of something, not really understanding that there needs to be more support, there needs to be more caring, there needs to be more love. And I think if people that don't necessarily struggle with a faith crisis, or that have a certain challenge, are dealing with someone that does have a challenge, whether it's a faith crisis or something else, we need to be sympathetic, we need to be kind, we need to be patient, we need to be as loving as we possibly can. Because who knows but what our interaction with them could be a catalyst, even a small one, help rekindle that faith just by how we respond. Awesome. Maybe kind of wrapping up, the, it, it seems to me over the last few months and maybe even going a little more than that, last couple of years, it, and, and recognizing that when President Monson became president of the church, he right away made his emphasis the rescue. It, it seems over his time as prophet and most especially in the last uh, few years that the church has taken some enormous steps to essentially go out and find the one, to leave the 99 and, and go find the one. What are your thoughts? I mean, you come from a faithful perspective. I come from a faithful perspective. I know there are lots of people out there who are struggling, who are having difficulty, who are encountering tough issues. They wish the church to move faster. I don't know, you know, I'd love to hear your point of view, but from my point of view, I don't know that the church has ever moved faster in fixing some of these things as they have in the last few years. They've certainly moved with Considering the size and organization, they've moved with some great rapidity with some different things. And the church has moved very rapidly in the past on some things, and some things have moved very slowly on. The revelation on the priesthood in 1978 was a revelation, but it took many years. We can't rush the Lord, and that's very hard. It's very hard to realize that something that we desperately want, and we don't understand why we can't have it. We may not be able to have it now. We have to wait. And that's really really, really difficult for us. Patience, by its very nature, is something we want, we can't have now. So patience, by its very nature, is just a very, very difficult thing. And so it's very easy to say, wait, the church is working on that, but for someone that's struggling with, why doesn't the church do more? It's very, very difficult to grapple with this. And, of course, the church isn't in a vacuum. It's had a long institutional history, and some as an example, some women's issues. I'm obviously not a woman, so I'm completely unqualified to speak about this, but I'll open my mouth anyway. Some of the women's issues could be tied to some correlation efforts 
where the Relief Society budgets and curriculum became kind of under the direction, rather than an independent body, kind of more under the direction of the priesthood. And so women are more naturally or more, be more likely to feel marginalized uh, by this. So if the church is going to kind of reverse that, it's going to take some time. Correlation took 10 to 15 years or more. So if we're going to undo that or figure out some way to kind of provide a good outlet for Relief Society and for sisters in the church better than we have now, Correlation took 10 or 15 years, so kind of figuring out some other outlet is going to take some time. And that's very difficult. It's very hard to see things that should be fixed now and not want to tinker with the machine and not want to switch the dials and just have to sit back and wait. That is extremely difficult. And my heart goes out to many people that see things the church should do differently or see things individual priesthood leaders should do differently and struggle with that. That's difficult. It's certainly difficult. Right. And you talk about the correlation one of the things I've thought about, the church used to be very uncorrelated. You go back far enough, and you could go from ward to ward, stake to stake, and there were completely different things going on. Then all of a sudden, it seems like the 1970s hit, and correlation in the church becomes kind of the key word. It's kind of where everything's going. And I think it got to a point where it was over-correlated. And now it seems like we're moving into this phase in the church where there's this beautiful balance. And, and I'll use it as an example of the Youth Sunday School. There's still a manual in the sense of being outlined lessons, but now the teachers have a lot of flexibility to address the personal specific needs of their class and even individual students. And it just seems like it just took a long time, and, and some will be heart-wrecked over that. But I think we're getting there to where there's this beautiful, happy medium of having enough correlation that everything's tied together, but enough flexibility that we can address individual needs and, and specific questions. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up the correlation point. I, I wanted to finish on two things. One, I wanted to ask you about your time in Sandusky and, and what, what was your, your best memory of, uh, of serving with, uh, with me or, or of me and, and maybe just to, your chance to maybe wrap me, wrap me out to the listeners of the program and to share some thoughts on, uh, uh, on your time in Sandusky. Sure. I guess both listeners of this program, I guess we'll get an earful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's you and me, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll, both, we'll both hear about this. So, uh, of course, you called me to be your second counselor, um, and I was kind of surprised and wasn't sure how that was going to work, quite frankly. But I remember the first... And, and be honest, you're not going to offend me either, just so you know. If, you know, if, if you, you know, if I, if I struck you as, uh-oh, this guy's trouble to begin with, feel free to go ahead and say it. Well, I didn't really know you, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, but I remember that first, uh, meeting as a bishopric. Uh, Brother Purdue, of course, is very quiet and pretty supportive and loyal. He's not gonna rock the boat much. And I was just, I'm somewhat headstrong on some things, but what, what I remember walking away from was a feeling that there was just a lot of unity in the bishopric, that there were things we wanted to accomplish, a common vision. And I remember feeling that a lot through the time that we served as, uh, as a, been a bishopric together. Yes, we were different. Yes, we had different perspectives, but there was a unity in what we wanted to accomplish and, in a sense, how we wanted to accomplish it, kind of the vision that we saw where things should go and could go. And so one thing I take away from that time was the power of unity, of having a presidency or a bishopric or a husband and wife to have a vision for their family, for themselves, and talk about it and work through it and counsel about it and pray about it and work to implement that. And the blessings that come in that process and as a result of that process. 
So for me, that's one of the great things that I will take away from that is the blessing of having that vision, working towards a vision, and seeing all the blessings from beginning to end throughout that. That's not to say there's no difficulties, no challenges, no struggles. That's kind of the point. There are those things. The blessings come in spite of that or because of those challenges and those trials. So that's one thing I'll take away from that. Another thing I'll take away from Sandusky is a feeling that in some units of the church, it's difficult to see a huge number of people in a ward that have the skills or the background or the experience or the whatever it is to move the church and kingdom forward. Sometimes that's difficult to see. And I remember a story that uh, one of your predecessors, Bishop Billiard, told me. He was a new member of maybe two years, and he was called to be bishop. And, you know, I, I really can't imagine what that would be like. A, a member of only two years, all of a sudden now you're a bishop over a congregation. You know, two years ago he was drinking beer, and now he's <laughs> a bishop, you know. <laughs> and he kind of struggled with this a little bit. And the Lord helped him understand who he could call, and he said that things worked out okay. So that's another thing I'll kind of take away, that even in times when it seems like, now we're talk, I was talking about leadership there, but in any case, how can I get through this? How can we make it through this? The Lord has a plan, and we try to trust him. We need to trust him, and we need to try to go with that plan. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, or it'll make a lot of sense to us, and it may be putting us out on a limb, but the Lord has a plan for us, and we need to trust in that plan, and we need to implement as much of that plan as we can in our lives and try to understand it the best that we can. So those are two lessons I'll take away from Sandusky. Awesome. You know, and, and we'll just kind of, I want to finish with one last question, but I want to just talk about for just a moment so that my listeners can kind of get a grasp of, of us serving together. Um, I would, I would, my first counselor, uh, Don Perdue, awesome guy. He would, you know, be the first one to turn on the lights, last one to lock the door. He would be wherever he was needed to be. And he was, and he's a little more fundamental in, in how he approaches the church. Um, you tend and don't, you know, I always, these are, I think these are compliments, but I'm always worried that in talking about somebody and even complimenting them, that it will, it will not be what they want to hear. But I always felt like, one, you were very intellectual. There were times where we would have discussions and I would want to be going off on direction A when direction A was the wrong direction. And you would say, well, on page 37 of the handbook, you know, and I don't even, didn't even know the handbook had 37 pages, right? And you would say, don't forget, you know, we have to make sure we do this this way. And so you would very much be looking ahead and being meticulous about us taking the right approach. And I saw myself kind of as, let's just, you know, go in guns a blazing and let's just get it done. And so there's these, and, and the way, you know, Don saw things being fundamental was a much different approach than I think you would take or I would take. And I think the three of us were very different, very different. And yet, like you say, to be in a calling and serve together, the feeling of being united, I don't know that I can match that in any other time in my life in the church. And maybe to relate that back to what we're talking about, the, the folks who listen to this podcast generally are either apologists who may be from fair or other places who have an interest. They will be folks who are either in the midst of a crisis, because I've gotten several emails from folks who are struggling, and Folks who have lost belief who also listen to the program. And there's quite a range. And we all think differently. We see things differently. We have different conclusions. And what I'm hoping to do through this program, Chris, is to make it so that, like you pointed out earlier, people see the importance of faith, that faith is a choice, that it's never off the table, 
that no, there isn't, you know, this perfect proof out there to settle all of us 100% on what there is and isn't. But that doesn't stop us from talking, from getting along, from working together, from each of us trying to learn and take more away from a situation. And so maybe I'll close saying this. In kind of a, a last opportunity from what you call a fund, you know, I want to say fundamental, but a very orthodox perspective, as you put it, what would you say to those who are struggling or have lost belief? What would be your, kind of as we end the interview, your opportunity to just reach out to them and say something? What, what would you share with them? It's a great question, and I apologize if anything I've said has been offensive or hurtful to any of the listeners. I realize that many of us have sensitive sore spots, and they're easily bruised. We're easily bruised sometimes emotionally, and I apologize if I've hurt or offended someone. But what I would say, and I realize, again, this is more of a perspective of sympathy rather than empathy, but what I would say is try to find, and this certainly goes for me, try to find whatever faith you have and hold on to that and look for God to bless you with whatever faith you can muster, whether it's you hope there's a God. If that's a starting point, that's a starting point. I think it's really important not to lose sight of that faith part. It's really easy to get overwhelmed with things going on in our mind. We need to nourish and nurture the faith. It's so critical to us spiritually, so important to us. Try to connect ourselves spiritually with heaven. Try to, and I think Matt Frankham said a very kind of a beautiful statement, that he imagined Heavenly Father as angry because of his strained relationship with his father. But it changed when he saw Heavenly Father as loving. And of course, that was a long process for him. But if we can try to do everything we can to see God as loving and to look for that love, I know that God does love us. That doesn't mean that we're perfect, and it doesn't mean that we feel of his love all the time. And sometimes we go through excruciating experiences. But it is my testimony that God's, God does love us. That is one thing I do know. Many things I do not know. I'm okay with that. But I do know that God lives and he loves us. Awesome. Chris Reeve, uh, Terrell Gibbons is the smartest guy that I am aware of, and you're the smartest guy I know. Chris Reeve, <laughs> thank you for being on Mormon Discussion. You've humiliated me in more ways than I can say, Bill, and I will disagree with you to the utmost that I am any sort of intellectual or scholar. I, I feel like I'm a bumbling nincompoop in most instances, but I appreciate your compliment. you got to remember, everything's from perspective, and you were standing next to me. So <laughs> thank you for being on the program. My pleasure, Bill. Bye-bye. That concludes my interview with Chris Reeve. Again, I remind you, on April 27th, I'll be speaking in the Kirtland Temple at the Mormons in the Middle Conference. You can register at www.sunstonemagazine.com slash symposium. Again, I hope to see you there. God bless, and may the Lord warm your shoulders.